everyone, and welcome to another episode of A1 Insights. I'm your host, Sophia Navard, and today we'll be discussing the importance of human milk for neonates. In honor of National Breastfeeding Month and Black Breastfeeding Week, this episode is sponsored by our generous partners at Prolacta Bioscience. We are now joined by our guest co-hosts, Dr. Diane Spatz, along with Dr. Jill DeMercy and Karen Fugate. Diane, Jill, Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Awesome. And I'm excited to have you. All right, to get us started, um, tell us a bit about yourselves and your current work within the neonatal health space. So I'll start. Um, So this is Dr. Diane Stotts. Um, I am a PhD nurse, and I have been doing research um, related to human milk and vulnerable infants for now over 25 years. Um, I currently have a joint appointment between the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And my passion is really the most vulnerable of children, surgical neonates, babies that are born with complex congenital anomalies. And they are at high risk for not receiving human milk. So I have developed a 10-step model that um, helps to ensure that babies can receive human milk and breastfeeding. Um, And that is really kind of my passion is making sure that um, we can help nurses provide evidence-based practice to make sure all babies get access to human milk and can breastfeed. Thank you, Diane. I'll go next. This is Karen. Hi, everybody. This is Karen Fugate. I am coming to you from Tampa, Florida. I am a currently I'm a performance improvement specialist at Tampa General Hospital, again, in Tampa, Florida. And um, my focus is really on improving care of patients in the children's hospital. Um, I have a lot of certifications after my name that are kind of scary. So I'm certified in uh, I'm a certified professional in healthcare quality. I'm also a Lean Six Sigma black belt. But really, at heart, I'm an RN. I'm a master's prepared RN, and my clinical expertise is in the neonatal ICU, and I've worked in the NICU for over 20 years, and I have a real passion for breastfeeding. So I've chaired the the breastfeeding committee in our NICU for many, many years, and I was also the team lead on the well baby side at Tampa General for us getting our baby-friendly designation. Um, I've also worked as a con- in a consulting role for the Florida Perinatal Quality Collaborative, um, consulting on um, initiatives such as the Mom's Own Milk Initiative, and then most recently our Neonatal Opioid Withdrawal Syndrome Initiative. So that's who I am. Thank you, Karen. Hey, everybody. This is Jill DeMercy. I am a nurse and a lactation consultant, and I'm a faculty member and researcher at the University of Pittsburgh School of Nursing. So my research is, um, again, like um, you know, Diane mentioned, I do work around um, breastfeeding support, not um, exclusively in the neonatal and critically ill population, um, but sort of a variety of groups who are at risk for worse breastfeeding outcomes. So some work that I have going on now includes a study on antenatal milk expression, which um, sort of involves providing parents hands-on chest or breastfeeding education before the baby actually arrives. Um, I also just finished a study on a smart text message support system, and we are starting a study on um, developing lactation support and resources for parents um, who have a current or past cancer diagnosis. Thank you so much, Jill. 
And I guess so. You can start us off, Jill. So can you give us an overview of the benefits and the importance of human milk for neonates um, and include perhaps, you know, the research that you conducted while working on the A1 breastfeeding and use of human milk position statement? Sure thing. Yeah. So um, I, I think I can start with the fact that, you know, chest and breastfeeding or provision of one's own milk, it's not just important for the health of neonates, but really um, for everyone. So it's the health of the lactating parent. It facilitates recovery from pregnancy and childbirth um, and also impacts the child's health long term. Um, and so, you know, and I'll also just say that we sometimes we talk about the benefits of breastfeeding can make it sound like a it's a it's a choice that parents always get to make between formula and breast or chest feeding. But, um, you know, I think the majority of parents um, are recognizing the importance of breastfeeding, but many, including marginalized folks like black birthing people, um, you know, may not be able to, to start or continue to breastfeeding because of circumstances that are sort of beyond their control. So things like lack of access to childcare um, and um, lactation support and quality lactation support. So when I think you know, we talk about the importance of breastfeeding and chest feeding. It's important to recognize like who we're sending the message to um, and that, you know, it's not just on parents, but really our healthcare system um, and societal structures to support parents in so that they can make the decisions that are going to benefit their health and their child's health. Um, all that said, I think, you know, I think it's like one of the coolest things. That's why I do the research I do. Um, it's just overwhelming sort of like how perfectly human milk and chest and breastfeeding fits so perfectly to meet, you know, the nutritional needs, the immunological needs and the attachment needs of both parents and children. So I know we're talking about um, neonates and, and infants who are in critical care units or the NICU. Um, and I know Dr. Spatz knows this very well. Um, but it's it's so important in preventing, um, you know, one of the biggest things is the prevention of um, necrotizing enterocolitis or NEC. Um, it can prevent other really serious conditions like intraventricular hemorrhages, uh, retinopathy of prematurity, sepsis, feeding intolerance, and um, in doing all of that um, can decrease the length of stay for hospitalizations and, and healthcare costs. Uh, we also know that it can prevent SIDS, um, things like GI infections and diarrheal disease, allergies, ear infections, uh, childhood leukemia, um, obesity, and some of these cardiovascular metabolic um, adverse outcomes like type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Um, yeah, and I, I, I'll just say some of the like the sort of lesser known things that I think um, we don't always talk about that are still you know, important for parents. Um, and I can attest with my, even with my own kids, some of the things that I noticed, um, you know, even with minor illnesses, uh, breast milk is so easily absorbed and has all the necessary electrolytes. Um, it can prevent dehydration and um, a hospitalization sometimes. Um, it can also help infants develop better eating habits through um, early programming of satiety cues with chest or breastfeeding. Um, and some folks think that it could reduce pickiness in childhood since babies are exposed to sort of the flavors that a parent eats, um, some, some of the more heavy flavors like garlic um, through breast milk. Joe, that was a great um, and thorough comprehensive um, listing of all the benefits. I think, you know, for me, what I think is so important, and you talked about the disparity piece, is 
How do we ensure that all people have equal access to information, right? And in my 10-step model, the first step is informed decision-making. And, you know, if you think about it, if you didn't grow up in a culture or a family where breastfeeding was the norm, how would you ever know to make that choice? And how do we truly help people make informed decisions? And we actually just had a new study published this week um, in Joggin about a tailored prenatal intervention to improve um, breastfeeding outcomes. And When you do teach people the science of human milk and the physiology of lactation, they not only will choose to provide milk for their baby, but they will do that at um, very long durations and high exclusivities we've shown in our research. And for me, I think one of the things that I love to share with parents is how cool some of the ingredients are in human milk. And people have no idea about this. So um, talking to families about the stem cells in human milk and how the stem cells have been shown to transfer to the baby's brain and that babies who are fed human milk have more white matter and more gray matter and they have bigger brains overall, which is just absolutely amazing. And thinking about things like osteopotin, which um, helps to develop the baby's GI system. I mean, there are just so many amazing things about human milk that when parents learn about and they hear about the science, they're just absolutely intrigued. And they're like, yes, of course, I want to do that for my baby. And then once we help them make that informed decision, Um, Joe, like you said, I think it's so important that we as a society support people on their lactation journeys. All right. Thank you both. So we were all throwing a wild card uh, back in 2020, the pandemic, right? And so can we review uh, the impact of COVID-19 on breastfeeding practices within the NICU? Yeah, sure. I can take that one. Um, being in the NICU, I'm very, very close to the NICU, so I understand some of those challenges firsthand. I think the first and foremost thing, I think just everyone in general is just extremely, the, the last couple of years have just been extremely stressful, right? So, um, and I just think for our families with all the, the stressors they have going on outside of the hospital, I mean, it's bad enough having a baby in the NICU, right? And I mean, that's stressful enough, but you have all these added stressors, you know, that, that COVID has brought upon our, our families, you know, um, and I just think it's made breast pumping their breast milk less of a priority. And some of those stressors that I think about are, you know, um, many people lost their jobs. They're all their If they have children at home, their children have been home. So they've, they've had to like deal with um, homeschooling their children, which is nothing that, that most people were prepared to do. So I just think in general, it's been just a, a very, very um, stressful period. And the other thing that I think about is um, it kind of leveled out after a while, but in the beginning, you know, visitation was very limited and, you know, we try and protect our NICU population. So we were kind of, a, a, you know, very, very protective of our, our babies in the NICU. And, and um, that's not a, a bad thing to do. But when you think about um, the mothers were allowed to visit, but there were some, um, a lot of limitations were placed on their support system. So a lot of the, the people that they would have normally brought to the NICU with them to visit weren't allowed to visit. 
And, you know, just an example of that, I think about, you know, a fresh C-section, right? So mom is discharged from the hospital and um, someone has to drive her to the hospital to visit, you know, who is that person going to be and what are they going to do? You know, sit around in the car, you know, while mom visits and she's likely not going to visit very long. So um, I think those are some of the, the impacts that COVID has had on breastfeeding in the NICU. And there's a, one other thing that I can think about is um, staffing, nurse staffing in our NICU. So met, during the pandemic, you know, a lot of intensive care nurses decided to travel. So um, NICUs have been very short staffed and um, you, you focus on, you know, airways and breathing and those sort of things first, you know, and then your support of breastfeeding kind of falls by the wayside. And um, then when you do get travelers, you know, if you're lucky enough to get travelers to, re to replace some of the staff deficiencies that you have, um, you know, those travelers just get you know, minimal orientation and, you know, they're kind of off and running. So many of the, the platforms that you have maybe stood up in your NICU to support breastfeeding, those, those travelers um, don't get that orientation and that education to how you practice in your NICU. So um, I don't know if anybody else has anything to add, but I can just say it's been a really rough couple of years. I've worked a lot globally with the impact of COVID. Um, and, you know, I would echo Karen's comments. Um, but I also think we need to take the pandemic and use it as a way to elevate and um, bring up how critical human milk and breastfeeding is, especially since we know the COVID antibodies are transferred both through human milk and through the vaccine. And to me, it just says that we need to have a call to action. We've been through this very terrible time. Karen is right. Staffing has been really challenging, but it should be a wake-up call for us all to really reprioritize and protect human milk and breastfeeding. It's an absolutely life-saving medical intervention. I agree with that. And I want to just add that um, I think that the pandemic has also shifted a lot of, I mean, not, you know, so much for infants um, in NICU, but in general. So, you know, ways that we were providing lactation care um, for outpatients before um, weren't necessarily happening. So we can see this shift to um, telelactation, um, uh, you know, and people using that more in offices, pediatric practices, um, having lactation consultants provide care in that way. Um, so I think that's good in some ways because it's it, it could be more accessible to people um but i think you know like um karen and diane said it's it really just um you know it, it provides an opportunity i think the covid pandemic to really recognize the importance and how um you know some of the stuff that we had in place before wasn't working so well and we're at a, a juncture where we can really improve the care for um for all all people i think Wonderful. Thank you all. Um, and back to Karen. So as one of the authors of the Improving Human Milk and Breastfeeding Practices a research study, can you give us an overview of your research and perhaps share some of your findings, including the barriers that NICU nurses, moms, and families, you know, continue to encounter? Sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, first, I want to, this was a, a, a quality improvement project near and dear to my heart, of course, and that, um, um, 
along with my passion for breastfeeding, this was the perfect project for me. But um, I want to say that we use Diane's, actually use Diane's 10 Steps as our platform for this whole project. So many, many thanks to Diane for that. Because um, when you think about tackling, improving breastfeeding practices in the NICU, there are so many things involved and kind of where do you start? So Diane's 10 Steps, I just need to give a shout out. You know, that was the perfect platform for our project. And also just that, you know, um, this project, definitely wouldn't have been successful without the help of the NICU nurses, the providers in, in our NICU, and also um, our lactation folks. So the study really um, highlights the improvement work that we did in our NICU between 2010 and 2013, again, using Diane's, those 10 steps for protecting breastfeeding in the vulnerable infants. And um, we used those, we used her 10 steps really as those key, key change concepts for our project. And at the, at the end, when I, actually we'd only fully implemented probably the first five steps in Diane's 10 steps at the time of publication of, of this journal article. But even with just implementing those first five steps, which really focus on coming to volume, we um, making that informed choice, ha helping families make that informed choice to provide breast milk you know, in the first place, and also focusing on coming to volume, we were actually able, when we compared... Um, very low birth weight infants who were discharged from our NICU in 2010 and compared that to those discharged in 2013, those babies in 2013 had a three times greater odds of going home with any milk at the time of discharge than those in 2010. So um, some of the other significant gains we saw during the project um, were um, pumping by Hour of Life 6. So I know we should be doing that as soon as possible, but for this particular project, we focused on by hour of life six. And we also saw great improvements in mom, mom the availability of mom's own milk for that first feed and the, ava the availability of a hospital grade pump at discharge for the mother. And we also saw some really nice gains. We also wanted to look at it from obviously the mother's perspective. So we looked at, there's a specific question in the Prescani survey that um, asked, you know, how well did you feel supported with your breastfeeding journey? I mean, that's, it's kind of, um, that's pretty much the way it's worded. And we saw, we saw some really nice improvements in um, that metric as well. So when I think about some of the challenges and some of the barriers um, during this project were, um, I mean, Diane kind of spoke to it. So when you think about, you know, having that discussion with a, with a mother, you know, to, to try and, you know, encourage her to provide us with her valuable milk in the, in the first place. We actually, the way we face that, that barrier is having a discussion with mom during our neonatal consults. So we actually trained our fellows who, our neonatal fellows who, who typically did these consults, they were actually trained on having that, on how to have that discussion. And they incorporated that with their discussions with the, the moms. And our lactation folks actually on antepartum. So some of our moms who were on um, high risk antepartum prior to delivery, they actually had those conversations with moms while they were on antepartum as well. And then when we think about um, that hospital grade pump at discharge. So what we find even, even now, even with the legislation that actually allows, you know, your um, all insurance providers are supposed to provide those pumps, but, um, 
back in 2010 to 2013, and even now, we find that these moms weren't expecting to have a, a preterm baby, right? So many of them had not even thought about getting a pump in the first place. And this was um, having a baby in the NICU was not part of their birth plan by any means. So um, we actually found that when moms like either requested a pump from WIC or from their insurance carrier, there could be like a one to two week gap in the time that they actually got that pump. And by then, you know, if, if once the mom was discharged from the hospital, if she waited that long to get a good hospital grade pump, I mean, her supply was extremely um, diminished and very much in jeopardy. So we actually set up a loan program. So um, we worked with um, um, one of our vendors, one of our breast pump vendors, and we set up a loan program. And um, one of our biggest fears was that we would lose our pumps. And we actually found that that was not the case. I mean, um, very rarely do we lose a pump. And um, from a hospital's perspective, okay, how, how are we going to pay for those lost pumps? We actually entered into a stop loss agreement with our vendor to where um, once we went through due diligence to get those pumps back, the vendor actually took that on, you know, themselves to get the pump back. And we were not responsible for um, reimbursing the vendor for those pumps. So um, I'm just thinking about some of the other things. So from a nursing perspective, when you try and get a mom pumping initially or whatever, you don't want to run to various places to gather supplies. So um, we put everything we, we um, um, created pumping kits so everything that a nurse would need to get that mom pumping initially, all of the supplies that you would need, the education, everything, we had volunteers actually um, put those kits together for us. So all a nurse had to do was grab them and go. And that was um, uh, increased efficiency from a nursing standpoint. Um, what else? There's so many things, but... Um, we, we, we um, prioritize the use of fresh milk. And one of the ways that we were able to do that is each one of our, our rooms in our NICU actually have fridges um, to house that fresh milk. So that was one of the luxuries that we had when we moved to a, a single family room NICU. And, um, I don't know, I, I could go on and on, but I think that's probably enough. It was a fantastic project. We learned so much and um, um, Many thanks to Diane for those 10 steps. We are still working through them right now. Um, and once you, once you, you know, have great gains in your project, you still have to sustain it. So we're always working on sustainability and getting better. Karen, such great work at Tampa General. And um, interestingly, we have a project that was published recently with um, implementation in Japan at a perinatal center. And similarly to your work at Tampa General in Japan, they focused on the first five steps as well. And their human milk rates also tripled um, at discharge. So it's pretty neat to see that it can be done any place in the world. So as we come to close, um, we know that there are strategies that nurses can implement to really promote the use of human milk and breast and chest feeding, and not only initiation, but really to get that milk through discharge. So Jill, do you want to um, speak to some strategies that you think are very effective? Sure. So um, I, I'll just reference the, the breastfeeding and the use of human milk position statement that um, 
I did with Dr. Spatz and Dr. Um, Asadu this year, or actually, I think it was it was published last year. It's hard with pandemic time to remember. Um, but some of the things I think that we highlighted in there, um, and these are more general, but um, you know, I think there's existing you know models, great models in place like the Ten Steps and Karen. That's just an amazing implementation project that you just described. Um, but I think, so some of the things that we highlighted in there are things, um, you know, like avoiding, if, if you know, um, if nurses are thinking of implementing um, strategies in, in their own places of work um, to avoid assumptions and biases based on their own breastfeeding experiences, um, re really rely on evidence-based resources. So, you know, even considering things like if parents are concerned about medications, so things like LACMED or a new source called Mother to Baby, which is really helpful. Um, and then I think uh, one other thing that we we haven't mentioned yet that is, is important is um, in all initiatives to you know, make sure we're incorporating the voices and experiences of, of marginalized groups. Um, and, and to do that, to prioritize diversity and hiring um, in the NICU in terms of nurses and lactation consultants as well. That's well said. I couldn't agree with you more. The, the, the other thing I think from um, one of the things that NICU nurses can do, and it doesn't take any, any resources to do this, is, you know, just recognize that it is a really, really long journey for NICU moms, right? Until they've, from the time that they give birth until many times they're able to take their baby home and, and hopefully put their baby to breast. So anything that we can do, in, you know, within that time frame to encourage our mothers, you know, I, I just can't, I can't emphasize that enough. Like, for instance, like uh, any ways that we can motivate moms. So having her participate in oral care, you know, realizing how important that is for her baby and, you know, her baby being able to test her breast milk, I mean, taste her breast milk and supporting skin to skin and supporting mom doing non-nutritive breastfeeding until she's actually able to do, you know, nutritive breastfeeding if that's possible. So I just, I just think I can't emphasize enough celebrating those milestones with mom and um, just being supportive. It's a long journey. And Karen, I couldn't agree more that that bedside nurse is so mm -hmm. critical because that NICU parent looks to that bedside nurse and they're like, that person is saving my baby's life, you know? And so when that bedside nurse is supporting them in their lactation journey through pumping and oral care and non-nutritive, you know, that is the whole picture, right? It's the whole picture of the baby. Of course, we think about Maslow's hierarchy and you were mentioning, you know, like airway breathing first, but like human milk is really critical. And so how that bedside nurse um, includes that in their day-to-day -day, day -day care makes such a difference for our families. All right, Diane, Jill, Karen, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights with our listeners. I mean, the three of you do such phenomenal work. Uh, so today's been a pleasure. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. You're most welcome. All right, I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners at Prolacta Bioscience for their generosity in sponsoring this episode. And to all our listeners, please be sure to visit a1.org slash breastfeeding or a1.org and search for breastfeeding resources, where you'll be directed to a list of educational resources for both nurses and families. I thank you again for joining us. And until next time, 
This has been Sophia Navard for A1 Insights.